Hello and welcome to the D&D Roundtable on the Tome Show Podcast Network. I'm your host, James Intracasso. If this is your first time listening, welcome to the show. If you've been here before, do me a favor, go give us a baller rating on iTunes because it helps us a bunch. Please use the affiliate links on thetomeshow.com whenever you shop on Amazon or D&D Classics to help support the show. Just go to thetomeshow.com, click on the links in the show notes for this episode or any other, and then shop as you normally would. Today, we're talking about the free D&D Adventurers League adventure, Shackles of Blood, by Joshua Kelly. And then, it's an interview with game designer Robert Brooks about his Kickstarter for the Athera campaign setting, which is a science fantasy setting for the Pathfinder role-playing game. His Kickstarter is going on right now. It ends soon, so if that interests you, you're going to want to check it out as soon as possible. Let's meet the panel and kick things off with our get-to-know-you question... What's the best animal or beast or D&D creature, what have you, to be polymorphed forever into? Uh, Alex Basso, let's start with you. Uh, so I will choose uh, an eagle. Really, I, I just want to be anything that can fly that doesn't have the threat of being eaten. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, if I'm going to be an animal, I want to experience something I'm not going to experience as a human. I, I'm not a pilot, and I don't think I'm going to become a pilot in the rest of my life, so I'm going to go with an eagle. So you want to be a flying apex predator. Exactly. Gotcha, gotcha. Eagle is a great choice, man. Um, and it's, you know, it's also super patriotic. So That's true. That's true. It's a bonus. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but why, I mean, Alex Basso, you're a young man. You're in your 20s. You can, <laughs> you can still learn to fly. It's a thing. Lots of All millionaires right. do it if you become a millionaire. <laughs> So, okay, become a millionaire, you're right, that's an easy first step. Let me just get that out of the way, and then I'll be a pilot. Exactly. The point is, you've got time, life, you've got miles and miles of life ahead of you. And then, of course, we turn to uh, Andrew Kane. Andrew Kane, what's the best beast to be polymorphed forever into? The only answer is a moon rat. (laughs) Describe for listeners who, who may not know what a moon rat is. Moonrat is, of course, the creature that uh, is a rat, but as the full moon approaches, its intelligence increases until at the full moon it is like a genius-level rat that can work with other rats to do genius-level things. Yes. Yeah, so- I mean, there is no other option. <laughs> Moonrats uh, from the third edition Monster Manual two or three or something like that. Um, they uh, they are exactly that rats whose intelligence wax and wane with the cycles of the moon, <laughs> and they're horrifying. They're really really horrifying. Uh, and of course, we also have James Hake with us today. James, what is the best animal to be polymorphed forever into? What other animal could I choose other than a fluffy, delightful house cat? Uh, if if I were a house cat, I could do all the things I normally do, sleep a lot, annoy people by making meowing noises and eat food all day, and no one would get mad at me. And in fact, my head would get scratched for doing it. <laughs> I mean, that's house cats do have a great life. Um, and they're also like... I find a majority of house cats are uh, jerks, um, and people still love them and want to house them. So uh, you would also get to be a jerk without having to answer for it. Wow, the perks just keep on coming. (laughs) Uh, And finally, Craig Hasis is with us. Craig, welcome back to the roundtable. What is the best beast to be polymorphed forever into? Well, thanks for having me back. Uh, You know, I'm going to go with uh, something that Alex said. And go Apex Predator, but I'm going to throw a bone out to Rich Howard, who you've oh, had on before. Yes, love Rich. And instead of going up in the skies, I am going down, and I am going to say a killer whale. Oh, Apex right. Predator of the seas That's takes right. on great whites, punts little baby seals like it's his job, <laughs> and we know we know so little about you know the ocean and the depths that it would be cool just to. See what's down there. Yeah, and they also uh, live a surprisingly long time. Um, and super amazing. smart. Yeah, and super smart. This is the Marine Mammals Podcast now. Uh, <laughs> we're just going to talk about awesome marine mammals for the rest of the podcast, so keep tuning in. Let's talk about this adventure, though. Shackles of Blood, it's available through the Dragon Plus app. It's also just available if you search online. Uh, the PDF comes up, Shackles of Blood, d d Adventure. 
And uh, and this was a free adventure that they're putting out. It's one of the D&D Expeditions adventures, um, similar to the Expedition adventure uh, Harried in Hillsfar that we also reviewed on this podcast. Um, so a lot of the adventure is laid out for organized play. There's lots of advice uh, for first-time DMs in the sidebar. Uh, I find that these adventures are actually laid out very well, better than even some published adventures that you can go and buy at a local friendly game store because they're expecting first time DMs to read them. Um, so I, you know, I really, really enjoyed this adventure as well. I thought Joshua Kelly did a great job. I thought it was varied, had a lot of cool challenges. I thought it had some good story points. So we're definitely going to get into it. We're going to break it down. We're going to see if people agree, if they like the adventure, maybe you didn't. That's fine, too. Uh, So we're going to give this a little review. Just a word to the listeners out there. We are going to be getting into some spoilerish territory. So if you plan to play through this adventure or you plan to run it, uh, we'll see you back next week on the roundtable. It'll be roundtable 95. This is roundtable 94. First, I just want to go around the table and see what people's various levels of experience are with the Adventurers League. Um, If you guys have ever played an Adventurers League game before, uh, if you have no experience, just so we can give the viewers, uh, I'm sorry, the viewers, the listeners, a a background here. Um, so let's start with you, Alex Basso. What is your Adventurers League experience? It is zero experience. Right. Yeah, right. I've, uh, you know, all the D&D I've done has just been through friends and with groups. I've never uh, you know, gone to a store and actually played with people or any event, so... Yeah, it's really limited, and I mean, I haven't even looked at any of these adventures before, so this is my first time uh, really taking a look. Awesome, awesome. And uh, Andrew Kane, how about you? Uh, similar to Alex Basso, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> I would say my the extent of my interaction with the Adventures League is listening to uh, Topher Cohen on the Roundtable podcast. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Uh, and uh, James Hake, how about you? I have played a couple of Adventurous League games at the Penny Arcade Expo up in Seattle over Labor Day. Um, Yeah, uh, I've never played it in store before, so I don't know what that aspect of the public play is like. But I have played at convention games. Mm -hmm. And in fact, Adventurous League first season, the Tyranny of Dragons season, was my first con game ever. And... uh, the tables get pretty busy <laughs> when you're playing when you're playing with max people with seven people in a dm it's it's an experience it's way different from home games yeah yeah it is it is very different uh to play at a convention craig uh what's your adventurers league experience uh, i'm likewise a newbie um i have never had any dealings with organized play at all so this is all coming for, just from a dm's perspective on this whole thing Excellent. Well, and that's one reason I wanted to assemble a panel, uh, because we do also have varying degrees of experience, uh, you know, as running a game, game masters and and dungeon masters and stuff. Uh, Andrew and Alex have not run many games, maybe run no games uh, in some cases. Is that correct? Yeah, zero games. (laughs) Correct. Uh, So, but, you know, but because a first time DM could pick this up at a store and could end up running it because maybe there are aren't enough DMs and somebody who thought they were going to play is now running or that kind of thing. I wanted to get a lot of different perspectives. And the reason we're a little Adventurers League light is this is a free adventure that anybody can get. And I wanted to sort of get the perspective of people who would maybe pick this up who aren't part of the Adventurers League to see, is this the kind of thing you might use in a home game if you had the opportunity to do that? Uh, so that's sort of just why the panel is, has the makeup that it has and who is coming from what perspective on the panel. So you, the listener know where we're coming from. All right, now we're going to get into it. We'll talk about shackles of blood overall. Uh, let's, let's give sort of overall opinions. This is part of the rage of demons storyline. It takes place in Hillsfar and sort of the surrounding region. Hillsfar is a famously racist D&D town. Uh, you know, they're, they're all humans. They don't let non-humans in usually. Um, and, uh, and they got some insanity going on in the town. Uh, thanks to the presence of the demon Lords in the Underdark who happened to be right underneath Hillsfar at the moment. Did you think that this adventure had a compelling story that made you want to play it, made you want to keep reading it? Uh, let us start with you, Andrew Kane. 
Sure. Uh, I, I did like the story. I thought it was a great little adventure. I think they, you know, it's always good to set up things with a good hook, which is saving people, uh, you know, uh, who need help. Um, and I think they did a really good job of laying out a, a well-tiered story from start to finish. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I think as, you know, as I was reading through it, I thought that it would be, it would be fun to play. It opens with you getting invited to this puppet show in town and you're invited by uh, getting an invitation and it gives you suggestions on where the player could mysteriously find this invitation, uh, which is pretty fun. You know, everything from a small animal dropping it off to finding it at the bottom of a beer glass. Um, and it's nice to see that touch in an adventure like this. Uh, what did you think, James Hake? Did you like the story of this adventure? I think this is a very cool, ambitious idea for an adventure. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I'm i enthralled with what it has to offer, but I'm a little surprised that it was uh, commissioned as a piece for organized play. I would love to include something like this in my home game. Mm -hmm. But we talk about uh, the puppet show, the meeting with... <laughs> this important character in the realms, Alasara, Light Song, and all the different ways to gather the team. And in, in my experiences uh, at convention games, which are, of course, a little bit different from Adventures League at a local game store or anything like that, the pace is so rapid fire. And no one knows each other to start with, it, including details like this like the invitation on a small animal or in the beer cup, and then this extended puppet show only serves to keep players away from the action for longer than I feel comfortable with as, yeah. uh, as a dungeon master. And, but it's totally something I would include in my home game because I know my players and I know their preferences and I can tailor it to what they're doing. When it's a, a group of largely total strangers, I would drop them straight into the middle of a fight. <laughs> and get them going from there because that's instant engagement. Yeah, yeah, and I, you know, it's funny. I think it's a it's a good point you bring that up about the convention gaming because this is meant to be played in four hours, um, and it is a lot to kind of get through in in four hours if you were to play it exactly as written and sort of by the book, um, which is kind of what you're supposed to do at a convention. Craig, what about you? Did you like the story of this adventure? Yeah, I did. Um, overall, from, you know, start to finish, there's, you know, 15 or so pages. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like like was just said, it is, I can see how the hectic pace of the organized play or even a, a local play at your local gaming store, um, I could see how the first part would be, could be a little tedious for those that are, you know, just drop me in coach, I'm ready to play. Right, right. Um, but, my, you know, from there... It's just, it seems to be just engagement after engagement with a couple of little, uh, you know, travel areas in between. And I thought it was pretty cool. There was a lot of different characters and, you know, I'm not familiar completely with, uh, the lore of forgotten realms outside of say the Salvatore books. Sure. But, you know, so some of these names aren't familiar to me, but you know, as the DM, it's your job to engage your players and get them going from the jump. So even if your players don't know these characters, there are plenty of sidebars, plenty of, you know, motivations. And even they give you quotes for some of these characters that mm -hmm. give you an insight as to how their demeanor would come across. Mm -hmm. So I feel like there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff for DMs to chew on to make this a really cool, really cool adventure. My only thing is that, you know, this is part of the Rage of Demons storyline and I've read Out of the Abyss, you know, cover to cover and I'm, I'm running it with at my uh, home game. Mm -hmm. I I was looking for a little more tie to that other than what we get. And well, I guess we'll get into that later in a later part of it. Yeah, no, I, I think that's actually a, a really good point is that if you are reading Out of the Abyss, um, it's n you can't exactly drop this into Out of the Abyss, right? Um, right. You know, it, it would take a lot of work and a lot of finding yourself no longer in the Underdark at some point. Yeah, though that said... This is a this is an adventure for what level one characters yeah, level one. Uh, one to four or something like that. This adventure could be a really great starting place because yes. absolutely, yeah. You you start off imprisoned and uh, reading the Twitter posts from <laughs> people like uh, Sly Flourish, Mike Shea, b people who write adventures like these. They 
are of the opinion that the beginning of Out of the Abyss is a little rough on yeah, first level it's players deadly, it's escaping deadly, yeah. from that drow prison and if you want to run players uh through the this adventure maybe another one in hills far for a bit before they're suddenly captured by drow maybe so they're level two level three uh beefier characters than the paper dolls that first level characters can be in fifth edition then they might have an even better time starting out of the abyss yeah, yeah, and that's exactly what I was thinking too. Is this is a like Harriet in Hillsfar? This might be a great thing to run before you actually uh, imprison your players, uh, unless your players really want to play on hard mode, like Alex Basso. Alex Basso, what did you think of the story of this adventure? Uh, overall, I, I definitely I really like the adventure. Uh, I'd say my biggest complaint is I'm not a big fan of really the hook in the introduction. I feel like it's it's mm. very forced, which you know I, I would prefer to like be a little more organic the entire uh magical <laughs> invitations just made me think of like harry potter i don't know <laughs> uh, i i was not a big fan of that but overall i mean uh the story seems great um it's got some awesome set pieces mm-hmm. uh like the finale and just like different styles of play you know it seems in the beginning it's a like takes on a you know investigative uh type story and i don't know it's got some good variety and it seems like a lot of fun and even if you're not going to run this whole adventure, you can easily just take parts from it. There is a really cool arena battle, and they give some, like, crowd mechanics within there that you could use, that you sort of use the energy of the crowd to gain bardic inspiration, and it, it helps you. But then if the crowd gets too crazy, they start to riot. And, uh, you know, so it's it's really, I really love that part. Um, Super cool. Yeah. Yeah, so James, talk to me a little bit about the the various mechanics here, because I do think they there are a few little sidebars like that that sort of give you either a little bit of story or give you like a hey, here's a here's something you could add to this, or here's how this would work. You know, at one point there's an encounter and there's a caged boar, you know, and mm-hmm. you might let the boar out, and here's what <laughs> the boar's going to do, or this this kind of stadium balance. There's a zip line uh, in this stadium thing that you can use to kick people in the face. Um, you know, <laughs> what did you think of uh, all of these uh, various little mechanics and, and the balance of the adventure kind of overall? The encounter in the arena is one of the coolest big D&D set piece encounters I've seen in a long time. And it's and it's because of things like awesome terrain, weird goals in the midst of combat, like ringing the bell instead of just beating up your opponents. And... <laughs> unusual mechanics like feeding off the energy of the crowd which any performer will tell you is a real thing that happens you get more pumped up the more the people around you are cheering and it too often combat in D&D especially when there's a lot of people focus is kind of drifting things like that it just dissolves into okay I hit him uh, okay he missed me uh, and it lurches on through that but including wild mechanics like this and especially having them written out for you and having a, a solid mechanical basis for them instead of kind of winging it uh feels really good to me as a reader i i would love to see how this plays out in real life yeah in real gameplay <laughs> yeah yeah i absolutely would and this is it's funny this is similar to the D epic that kicks off the Rage of Demons storyline. Uh, I played it at Gen Con, and it takes place in the Hillsfar Arena, and they flood it with water, and there are these towers, but instead you're on, like, a boat. And there's and this, you're not moving around on a boat. You're moving around via zipline and all kinds of craziness. It's, it's pretty awesome. Uh, so what about you, Craig? What did you think about the overall sort of mechanics and the balance of this adventure? I thought it was really well-balanced, mm-hmm. like... Like uh, you know, James said, there's there's investigations. You've got combat, but it's not just your typical combat. It's you've got these different set pieces. I thought there was enough to kind of appease every type of gamer, mm-hmm. you know, which which leads to a really good balance. You've got people that are more into the role playing, which the opening, that's all you know. That's what a lot of that is the the puppet show. And then you've got the investigation. You've got you know the farm, mm-hmm. and and by the time you get to the end. I would imagine all your players are chomping at the bit. All right, here we are. Let's go. You know, so I thought it gave it gave enough of everything, and and what it did give was really really well done. 
Yeah. Yeah. And it's one of those things, you know, there's a convention in storytelling that, that screenwriters talk about where if you see, if you're shown a gun in the first act of a, a you know, of a show, it better go off in act three. Right. Um, right. And, I, and this does a good job of building. Yeah. It, you don't get, you're not fighting right out of the gate. It's the end in the arena. So you've got this build going to it. And like I said, by the end, all your players, you know, they're using the zip lines. They're doing all this crazy role playing stuff to get the crowd whipped up to get those, you know, I don't even know if they have a name for it, but the frenzy points or whatever you want to call them. Mm-hmm. You know, they're doing things outside of just rolling dice and hitting an armor class. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's, there's a lot of options there in combat. Uh, which I know is one of Alex Basso's favorite things is tons and tons of options uh, in combat and exploration and interaction. So, Alex, what did you think about the mechanics and the balance of this adventure kind of overall? Uh, balance what? I mean, it's I can't say for sure. I didn't read too much into the stats. I mean, I'm sure I like how, you know, I, I'm like I said, I've never looked at one of these before. I love how it gives you tips, you know, based mm-hmm. on the strength of your party, how much stuff you need to add. Uh, but the, the, I'd say the arena is, just seems like so much fun because I love the addition of the kind of objective to ring the bell mm-hmm. in the center of the arena <laughs> is uh, having combats where you have, you know, a secondary objective that makes you just do things you wouldn't normally do as a character. I think just, it makes it so much more enjoyable. You know, you'll be rushing, you'll be ignoring, you know, uh, enemies in the, uh, around you just to rush to that bell, to jump into the water filled with fish. You know you need to ring the bell. It seems that kind of the reward for ringing the bell isn't all that useful. You just get a (laughs) healing potion, (laughs) and then it starts sinking. So that's kind of disappointing, but by adding that extra uh, complexity to the combat, I think that that makes for a great experience. Yeah, Something I definitely would like to try. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that speaks volumes. If it's a thing that you want to, you want to get involved in playing, that's really great. Uh, Andrew Kane, what about you? Balance and mechanics overall? Uh, it all looked good to me. Again, as someone who's never run a game, I don't, you know, I'm not in as good of a position to, you know, say, oh, this looked, this looked right to me. But as a player who's played for a while, I think it all made a lot of sense. And I agree with what's been said by, the other members uh, of the round table. Um, the arena, I agree with Alex 100%, seemed like a ton of fun with all these different options and cool things to do. I love the crowd piece and getting that involved. Um, and I also liked, again, the stuff that was built in to help support, you know, if when you come to the final confrontation, if your group is weak, how you can have them, you know, kind of get recharged uh, based on partially how they acted in the arena towards others, as well as just, you know, making use of the setting. Um, I thought that was very well done. They divide the adventure into these three parts, right? And the first part is you are going to try to rescue these people, and you may very well end up captured. Um, in fact, that's kind of the point, is that there are these these places where you are going to end up captured and, and coming back into the arena. And then in part two, you're on your way to Hillsfar, uh, and then you end up in the arena. And it seems like there's a lot of sort of heavy role-playing and interaction in that part, uh, which to me, I was like, wow, there's a whole section in this adventure that you don't really even necessarily have like a clear cut objective other than to make it to the next part of the adventure. I thought it was really well written, had a lot of great suggestions about like how the the different ways that people were interacting with you and, you know, all these, again, fancy sidebars with the quotes from people and how you should role play this NPC and that kind of thing. Um, I really was, was very taken with, uh, with part two of the adventure. Obviously we all love part three. That's the big arena set piece battle. What did you guys think of parts one and two of the adventure? Yeah, well part two, I think like you just said, it offers the juiciest role playing opportunities. Mm -hmm. And when you get to Hills far, there's the sidebar that in bold letters warns DMs, you know, this is a city of depravity and, <laughs> you know, debauchery. And, we're, you know, I'm picturing Sodom and Gomorrah in my head, but you got to know your table, you know, right, obviously. Right. And, it, it, you know, I like the fact that they say, hey, in Adventurers League, you may want to tone it down a little bit, whereas your home game, you can go buck wild. 
So I like the fact that, and that's the part where if I'm reading between the lines correctly, mm-hmm. all that is because of the Rage of Demon storyline and what's happening below the city. Right. Am, right. am, I, am I getting that correct? Is that... Yeah, yeah. It's, it seems to be the implication is that specifically uh, right. Grazd, right, is is making right. everyone in the city overindulge in various Hedonistic, yeah. yeah. Yeah, So I, I did like it. I mean, part one, you know, getting captured, and that, that seems to be kind of the, the typical... Mm-hmm. typical trope but once you get into part two it really opens up to where you as the dm have a lot of freedom to engage the role-playing part and hopefully you know the players will take that bait and it just seems like there's so many character interactions and and so much depth to it that there's just a lot of room for there for a dm to work alex what did you think about the first two parts of this adventure uh i really like part one uh just because it's you know, if you play part one straight, you're going to, you know, talk to some people who seem like they're, you know, just rebuilding after an attack and, you know, meet an elf who tells you some other stuff and leads you directly into a trap. But there's so many ways where you can, you know, sniff this trap out uh, and so many interactions you can do just by, you know, checking out the actual houses and noticing, hey, this isn't a human size. This is halfling size. These people are lying to us. Uh, and it just seems like a rewards of, you know, actually exploring and, you know, taking the time to not just trust what people say to you. And I, I always like it when NPCs lie to you and you can figure it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so part one, I actually really like. Um, one thing I, I'm i not as big a fan of, or it just seemed maybe the weakest part of this, is if you do, you know, survive the ambush and take the camp out, there's only like half a page dedicated to like what you need to do. <laughs> right. And it basically yeah. boils down to, uh, you know, you the Olisara will tell you to pose as farmers and get captured. Um, right. <laughs> so, I mean, it seems really unlikely this this adventure is, you know, it makes it abundantly clear that, you know, whoever stack the, the encounters, get your, or get your players captured. Mm-hmm. Um, Act 2, I think, does a great job of building up. You know, it, you're transported as prisoners through this city, you know, through this path to the arena. There's so much time awaiting in the arena uh, while they clearly are getting it ready for some big event and you can, you know, get clues to what that is. So I think it's, it does a great job of building up to act three. So Andrew Kane, what about you? What did you think of the, the first two parts of this uh, shackles of blood adventure? I really liked it. And one thing I'll say is it actually made me think more. So again, not to beat a dead horse, but as I've already said, I've never run a game. I've only ever played a game. Mm-hmm. Um, Although I, I really like storytelling, so I always appreciate a good story. But reading through parts one and two made me think more about my actions as a player. Um, not that I didn't ever think about what I was doing would net results, but at times I haven't thought about like what the alternative might be. And in particular, you know, you meet up with a character that you've encountered before and depending on the way you talk to her about particular things could mean that character lives or dies. Um, and that for me was really interesting because I never really certain encounters myself as a player. I never thought about things in those terms. Right. right. Um, and so I thought that was really neat to see that written out. Um, and it also made me appreciate um uh, people running games even more, James, you especially, since you're generally the only DM I've ever <laughs> played with. Um, as far as when you're coming up with this stuff on your own and thinking about all these variables, I just thought it was really neat how many different paths you could follow through and like what little snippets you could pick up on, the investigation piece, you know, really plumbing the depths of all the different features of the game. And it's not just about the major battles. It's about all these other things going on and how you try and negotiate with your captors and what arguments would work with them versus what wouldn't, et cetera. I thought it was really neat. And as someone who particularly loves the role-playing aspect of the game and those pieces of it, I really, I really enjoyed seeing all the different options for parts one and two. Yeah, it's it's really great to get the perspective of people who have never DM'd a game before, too. Uh, I'm really enjoying what I am hearing. This was a great <laughs> in- adventure to introduce you to, because there are a lot of not great ones out there, too, that you could have uh, picked right. up. 
And as a DM, it's great to see other people's perspectives on how they're doing it as well. Because sometimes you've got your way, mm-hmm. but when you take a look at this, you could see some some of the directions that other people take it, and that's never a bad thing. No, no, never is. Uh, James Hake, what did you think about the adventure and uh, the first two parts specifically? Part one in particular reminds me a lot of the opening scene of Inglorious Bastards, <laughs> where Christoph Waltz's SS yes. agent character comes to the farmhouse on the French countryside. And you look at Hillsfar and how it's basically this racist, human supremacist, fascist regime of a town uh, prosecuting the uh, persecuting these halfling farmers out there, and you're the heroes come to rescue them. Oh, incredible beginning to an adventure. <laughs> I love the concept. And I think if you're looking for great, great evil forces, if you just throw in some fascist humans, I mean, you're you're set. <laughs> the, the grand forces of evil throughout our history are well known to be that sort of thing. And absolutely, like I think Craig was talking about earlier, those big bold letters in Adventures League. Oh, you know, your know your table. Your players might not be comfortable with all this. That's the perfect thing to throw in because you can play up whatever you want in your home game as long as you know what your players want to do. And you can make people as evil as you want to in the second part of this adventure because you you know your players are going to hate them trying to build up for that final, final encounter in part three when the guy who captured you shows up and is ready to put a stop to your plan once and for all. Oh, man. And even the sidebar, like, describing the way to play the main villain. Uh, exactly. Oh. <laughs> it's it's so good. Really makes you really makes you hate these guys. Would you run this adventure? Would you play in this adventure? Uh, let's start with you all the way up atop, Alex Basso. Oh, yeah, definitely. I'd love to play it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like I said, maybe it doesn't have to be every single part. Like you could cut some stuff out. I think it it could all be taken individually. <laughs> yeah, you know, I I think that there's some strong you know just gameplay par- uh, moments in it. Mm-hmm. But I mean, even as a whole, I'd love to play it as a whole. You know, I think it'd be a really good first time adventure for. Well, maybe not a really good because there is that huge gap between the the start of it and the actual first <laughs> combat. So maybe with a couple alterations, a really good first adventure for some uh, for some new players, uh, and even. Uh, I'll say, you know, I've never considered really D, uh, DMing, but this, it, it, it did cross my mind at a point. Like, I think I could do this. <laughs> you absolutely so, could. You absolutely, absolutely. So could. who knows? Maybe, maybe I'll DM it one day. <laughs> I would love that. I would love to play in a game that you DM. Uh, Andrew Kane, what about you? Same question. Uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I really think it would be a, an adventure I would like to play. Uh, again, I liked the diff- the balance of the different pieces of playing uh D between you know this big battle these various other battle opportunities how you handle particular situations investigation i just really liked it i know i would enjoy it um and it did again seeing the sidebars and everything else it was a reminder of how much goes into planning an adventure a quest a campaign etc but it also made me think about similar to what Alex was saying, I think I could do this. Um, it would just take a lot of work and I would probably overthink it, but, uh, <laughs> it's still, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, I thought, it, I just thought it was great. Yeah. If, if you'd overthink it, you're already halfway there. So, uh, <laughs> and James, Hake, what about you? Is this the kind of thing I think you already even mentioned that you would love to bring into your home game? This is a fascinating example of an adventure that fits my three-act structure of running a game almost perfectly. <laughs> and it really it's, does, yeah. It's, yeah, because I most of my adventures, I, I'd say my, my archetypical first starting adventure would be a problem is posed, they investigate it for a little bit, uh, they go on some overland journey, and then there's a gigantic fight at the end. And that's a great structure <laughs> for most D&D games, which actually puts this adventure at odds with the one of the core design assumptions of fifth edition which is the party will go through six to eight encounters in an adventuring day with two short rests and then a long rest <laughs> at the very end which i think is fascinating that this uh, official product which is 
highlighting the core strengths of fifth edition would would do this mm-hmm. because i <laughs> i i think the core assumptions of fifth edition are good stuff i think its balance is a-okay and i i would never in a million years run my party through six to eight encounters with two long rests and one long rest at the right. end because i think that's <laughs> abysmally boring going through a dungeon with a couple of fights that are you know medium difficulty and never pulling out the big guns and then they sleep mm-hmm. yeah i think that yeah that style of one huge set piece encounter that was one of I, I think one of the biggest strengths of fourth edition, the ability to create giant set piece encounters oh, easily totally. is uh, I think it's a great strategy. Craig, what about you? Do you think you would bring an adventure like this into your home game? Well, I'm actually glad you contacted me to be on the show because I am going to, now that <laughs> I've read this, bring this in. Cause I have, I started uh, out of the abyss um, mm. with my two younger boys and they were thrown into that drow ambush and didn't know what was going on. They didn't, you know, it, you're, you're just dropped there. I think this, when I started with my regular home group, um, which will be actually our first fifth edition game with my, with my group, um, it's, I'm going to start this and then move right into Out of the Abyss, which like James suggested, it was, it's a perfect transition. It's a perfect flow. And also like what was just said, you know, James, you touched on, how this has different elements of the different editions. And that's how I've described fifth edition in a nutshell. It takes the best of just about everything cuts off all the fat and you're left with a really, really good product. So yeah, I mean the short answer. Yeah. I'm definitely going to be using this for sure. Yeah. And right. That, that would probably make Mike Merles very happy to hear you say that about fifth edition because it was supposed to be (laughs) one edition to rule them all. Right. Um, Right. And I do think it's funny. I think whenever you talk to somebody, whatever edition of D and D they started with is the edition that they say fifth feels like, you know what I mean? Like, uh, like a lot of people uh, I talk to say, you know, it it feels a lot like third because they started with third. Uh, and then other people say, no, no, it's second edition. No, no, it's first. So, um, you know, that's that's good. That's a good, uh, fun argument that people are having uh, because it just feels like fifth. Well, I would love to hear, Craig, about how this goes. Um, how old are your boys, by the way? Well, I've got one son that's 20. I've got a daughter, 18. And my youngest son is, just turned 15. But then my girlfriend's son is 14. So they hit it off well and got I I actually got him into D&D and his mind's working he already wants to DM. <laughs> you've got so, you've got a built-in D&D group right there. Right, exactly. Exactly. It's a great reason to have kids actually now that I'm thinking about it. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my oldest son, you know, back in the early 2000s, he used, he told me this a couple years ago. He used to sneak into a side room and listen to us play after he was supposed to go to bed. And he would go to sleep fantasizing about everything that he heard us talking about whether some of that stuff was good to be hearing i don't know but (laughs) (laughs) but you know not knowing he was there but yeah and now he's 20 and part of my regular gaming group and uh so yeah it was it's it's good to have your own built-in group that is a beautiful story man so uh and uh and you're you're doing you're doing the best work possible introducing people to D&D uh and that's what the Adventurers League is is trying to do and it sounds like that's what all of you uh here on the round table today are are doing so uh it sounds like this adventure gets a big thumbs up from everybody here um you definitely should check it out it's free uh and we also would love to hear what you think so go ahead and contact us over at thetomeshow.com and the show notes for this episode or facebook.com slash the tome show all right let's roll the interview with game designer robert brooks creator of the Athera campaign setting all right everybody i am here with robert brooks who is the inventor of the Athera campaign setting who is currently having a Kickstarter right now as we speak. There's only a few days left from the time this podcast launches. So what you're going to want to do right now is while you're listening, pull out your smartphone, uh, go to your computer and uh, and type in Athera campaign setting into Kickstarter or go to the show notes for this episode where we'll have the Kickstarter linked and check it out. Follow along with us while we talk about this thing uh, because if you are a fan of science fiction or fantasy in your role-playing, then you are going to want to check this out. Robert, 
thank you very much for coming on the roundtable today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Oh, man, you are welcome anytime. This is a really, really cool product. Uh, tell me a little bit about the Athera campaign setting. So um, the Athera campaign setting kind of stemmed from um, my own home group uh, back before we even played Pathfinder. Like 10 years ago at the uh, the dying twilight of uh, 3.5 D&D, we wanted to kind of build something that was fun for us. We had some ideas about wanting to do a spacefaring and science fiction stories, and there really wasn't any material out there for that aside from Dragonstar, and we didn't have any of the books for that. So we figured, you know, well, you know what, we'll build something of our own. We made some design notes, kind of talked about how the world worlds would be built, and um, then right around the time Pathfinder came out, we promptly forgot about it and started playing in uh, the campaign setting they have. Right, right. And uh, a few a few years ago, I was cleaning up uh, notebooks and I. I found my Athera notes, didn't read them, set them aside. And last year, I finally decided to delve into them. I'm like, you know what, this will be a good exercise. You know, look up some of my old designs, get some perspective on, uh, on how things have changed and uh, my ideas. And as I was reading through it, I, I found that it was a much more solid idea than I had remembered. And I kind of brought it back up to the original people that were involved. And then I showed it around to some of my... Um, freelancer friends and they all thought it was a really interesting idea something that really hadn't been seen yet and that was sort of the the genesis of um where we're at now it was this kernel of an idea from a decade ago that once we really started spinning it out we realized it had a huge potential to tell really interesting stories nice nice and so those huge interesting stories i mean i think a lot of people get into the medieval fantasy role-playing aspect what makes Athera so cool and unique, other than obviously the science fiction aspects of it all. It seems like it's actually this really cool blend, right, of fantasy and sci-fi. Yeah, it definitely is. It's a, it's a science fantasy story um, setting in, in its at its heart. Um, so you can kind of take some inspiration from um, things like Mass Effect or Star Wars that, that really, while they have science fiction trappings, you know, there's, there's magic. So Jedi are space wizards. And this setting kind of takes that to a little bit more of an extreme. Um, you know, you'll you'll be able to play like paladins and holy knights and all that, but they'll also be on the bridges of starships. They'll be traveling around between planets. And the setting also isn't um, like when people think of science fantasy, sometimes they think of like John Carter of Mars, you know, where it's a, a sweaty guy and like a harness with a sword and sandals running around in the desert. The, the visual style for this is a little more um, 1920s, 1930s. We were really inspired by um, Art Deco and Art Nouveau, um, retrofuturism, the kind of stuff you'd see in games like Fallout, where the starships might have some of the, um, the visual aesthetics of like a 30s or 40s car. Um, you know, fins and lights on it. Um, and we wanted to bring like a more modern setting to a fantasy game. I remember uh, I was discussing the original idea for the campaign setting with a friend and they mentioned um, the Harry Dresden books and how um, that kind of urban fantasy, uh, you don't really see as much in tabletop games, especially in like the D20 games. And we wanted to take some of that feeling Um and this especially started to really come to a head once I started working on Occult Adventures for Paizo. And I saw what they were going to be doing with psychic magic and occultism. And taking the idea of that like 1920s, 1930s pulp occultism, putting it in space where you have these people who are like spiritual mediums to talk to the dead, who are on the bridges of a starship communing with the ghosts of people who like died in the vacuum of space. I just I haven't seen that done before. And ideas like that, just taking a a fantasy trope and putting a completely different spin on it is something I really wanted to tap into. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about why you decided to bring this to Kickstarter. So it sounds like this was right a, a really cool homebrew setting. Everybody was loving it. And then you thought, you know what? Now's the time. I, I really want to bring this to the public. What made you decide to do that? I think it was that I hadn't seen anything like Athera out there. Um, and the reaction to pe from people who had seen the work, who had um, taken a look at the setting, some of the ideas we had were very positive, and they all kind of wanted to get their own fingers in it. They wanted to be able to play in it themselves, and I thought, you know, this is a good opportunity. I hadn't been um, freelance writing when I first came up with Athera, and uh, a few years ago, I was in um, Paizo's RPG Superstar competition and finished as a finalist, and that kind of jump-started my freelancing career. Once I had a few books under my belt, I realized that 
you know, the, the third-party publishing atmosphere was really conducive. It was a great community. And I think taking advantage of that and leveraging my experience with that community kind of gave me the opportunities to bring this to people. It's just a fun story. I think the setting is something that um, people will really be able to dig their fingers into and make kind of make it their own. Um, even with a book as large as this, I mean, we're planning on like a 400-page hardcover. We want to be able to make it modular for people. So um, we've had some discussion on the Kickstarter. Um, people have wanted to know if we're supporting DreamScard Press's Psionic stuff. And um, in the book itself, we're not. We're trying to make it as streamlined as possible. So you'll need like the core rulebook for Pathfinder and then the Athera campaign setting at most to really play. Um, but we were going to have some options for like incorporating more third-party work. Um, I've heard people talk about uh, Spheres of Magic, which was done uh, by another third-party publisher. And of course, Dreamscard Psionics. And I, I think they'll all be able to kind of dovetail in. We want everyone to kind of be able to bring whatever they like at their table to Athera and then be able to tell the stories they want in that setting. Nice, nice. Well, that's really cool. And this is a, I mean, this is a pretty big initial goal for Kickstarter. We're looking at $50,000 as your initial goal. Uh, what is it that you need that $50,000 for? It sounds like a huge, huge universe. So I'm guessing that it's a, a, quite a large source book that we're talking about here. Yeah, our goal is 400 pages. Um, a large chunk of the uh, the Kickstarter funding actually is going to the art design. Um where we have a, a large stable of artists on retainer that we're going to to tap into for this. Most of them work in video game design as concept artists. Um, I wanted to try and pull in artists who hadn't worked in tabletop before to get um, a visual style that we hadn't really seen before in most of the third-party publishing. And I think from the reaction to the um, the preview art that I've shown on our Facebook page and on the Kickstarter, I, I think that's really worked out. Um, we have a, a comic book artist, um, Jadeite Kasi, who did uh, Sphere Theory and Fox Sister uh, do a promotional comic for us. And she's going to be doing these two-page comic book spreads that open up each chapter that tell kind of a little vignette of the um, campaign setting story. And the art direction alone is, is probably a third of the budget. Um, and also paying the writers. We have 31 freelancers working on this, um, not counting the core team. And then also printing and publishing. So uh, we're not cutting any corners with the printing. We're going with a, a really high quality paper, high quality ink. Um, we try to get the best deal we can get, but with a 400 page book, uh, shipping alone is, um, to the distributors is going to be pretty expensive. And this is our first, um, our first real product, uh, from our publishing company. And we wanted to come out of the gate strong and hit really hard, but publishing is extremely expensive, especially for a book of this size. And to get it to be a, a really professional, slick quality book, you're, getting every penny you're paying for. Gotcha. So your approach was we want to do the biggest, best book we can, can or we're not going to do a book at all. Pretty much. <laughs> uh, talk to me a little bit about why Pathfinder. What is it about the uh, Pathfinder rule set that makes it perfect for this campaign setting? Pathfinder is was for me a natural spinoff of the fact that uh, I, I played um, Dungeons and Dragons from all the way back to second edition in the 80s. Um, and we, you know, my group graduated to 3.5 when that came out. And then when 3.5 went away, we, we took a look at fourth edition. It really wasn't for us. And we had already spent you know hundreds of dollars on these 3.5 books. And Paizo, um, Pathfinder's publisher, had always done really strong work when they had Dungeon & Dragon magazine. I think when, when they took the magazine over, it had some of the uh, strongest turn of content. And when we heard that they were doing sort of a 3.75 in a way, it, it caught our attention, and my group started playing Pathfinder, and we loved it. The, the customizability, the um, the sheer breadth of options that keeps expanding every year. I think being able to take Pathfinder and say, all right, I want to do this, and then look through the rules to try and find something to accommodate your idea, there's really not a lot you can't do with the system, provided you have access to enough material. And I think that diversification of options is really what appeals to me the most. And it's also system familiarity and mastery. I mean, I've been writing for um, Paizo for a few years now. Um, I've been playing Pathfinder for years prior to that. I, they always tell you to write what you know, and Pathfinder is what I know. It's also got a really strong community, um, really loyal fan base. I go to PaizoCon um, every year for the past two years uh, in Seattle. I get to meet people who have you know, played uh, at Pathfinder Society scenarios I've written um, 
played uh, some of the archetypes and classes from source books I've done. And it's it's an interesting experience. Um, Pathfinder has a, a really strong, really kind of tight-knit community. And um, you don't see that in a lot of other tabletop games. No, no, you certainly uh, don't necessarily see the the commitment, right, that a lot of things have. Mm-hmm. Um, and Pathfinder uh, had did a great job of... Uh, making its way to the top of the industry. You know, I think until 5th edition came out, it was up there yep. for several years. Uh, and even now, it's still a very, very strong contender in the RPG market. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of that has to do with some of the best designers are on it. The community that supports it is a really great community. And, you know, the, just like you said, the sheer number of options really make uh, things great because you can find whatever you want to play within those core rule books within a medieval fantasy setting. And now you're cracking that wide open to bring it into a science fantasy setting, right? Yep. Um, So let's talk a little bit about the Kickstarter. looks like there are a lot of options Mm -hmm. here for various backer levels. We don't have to go through every single one in detail, but it Mm -hmm. looks like we've got your, you know, your normal, hey, come and get the the PDF if you want. Hey, you can get the hardback book, that kind of thing. What are some very special things you'd like to call out at the various backer levels here? I think one of the um, the things I'm I'm most proud of is the uh, the comic book actually. Um, Jay Dicasi did this this really wonderful, um, really colorful comic that kind of takes place at a, a pivotal point in the setting's history. And um, at the lowest backer levels, you get a, a PDF copy of it. And it's not just going to be the the five pages of the comic. There's going to be some um, some bonus kind of behind the scenes information, um, sketches, and uh, a little bit of detail about the um, the characters that are in the comic that you don't see in those five pages um we're looking to have some um npc stats for them in case you want to bring them into your own game and um we're also kind of looking at continuing that comic book on should we fund um the publishing costs for that are, are considerably lower than the campaign setting so it's something we'd like to do side by side with it um at higher backer levels you actually get a print copy of it that'll ship um with the rest of your stuff we have a um a retailer backer level two that gets copies of the uh the hardcover campaign setting and the um the printed comic um that can kind of be sold as a package um to brick and mortar stores uh some of the the higher backer levels actually have some um some really fun options i've i've gotten a, a surprising amount of people who have pledged um that they would like me to uh run an Athera game for them over a um online distribution like roll 20 or game table um and that's that's uh higher up there in the backer levels uh, i think it's a 240 forty dollar backer level um but basically we have an early access pdf um that's going to have uh, the rules for the races some of the classes archetypes um equipment feet spells and all that that goes out um for the uh for pretty much every backer level you get access to that and um, that'll be available around february and um at the uh, 240 backer level i'll get together with you in a group and at a time of your choosing and you know we'll we'll run through a thera we'll get you to really see what it's like from the perspective of someone who created it um we've also got a uh a free adventure um that's in some of the backer levels it's a uh, kind of quick look into the setting drops you down in the middle of a kind of exciting espionage based story um takes a little bit of a uh, a turn of the urban fantasy stuff i was talking about and kind of spins it on its ear a little bit and uh at the higher uh, much higher level um <laughs> we have three actually uh one backer uh pledged the 1350 dollar um level to uh get to create an npc that goes in the campaign setting um they get their own concept art you work on their story with me um and it's a uh it's going to be a really fun option because the the NPCs you'll be creating with this backer level aren't just going to be one-offs who appear like you know in the margins of a text. Um, in the Kickstarter, you'll see that there's like iconic racial artwork for each of the um, the five unique races for the setting. The NPCs you'll be creating here are the other versions of those iconic. So there's going to be two for each race: one male, one female. Um, and we've only created five um, and we've only revealed four. Uh, So the remaining NPCs will be created by backers who work at that level. And these NPCs are going to be seen throughout all of our products, both the campaign setting and onwards, much like how um, the Iconics for Paizo's classes are seen throughout all their work. So 
once you create this character, you'll be seeing it a lot in the future. Um, so I'm kind of excited to be able to work with people and let them have their own kind of spin on things. And at the highest backer level, I'll fly all the way out to you and jam a game in person. I'll, I'll tap dance and wear a monkey suit, you know, whatever you need. <laughs> <laughs> if you make this thing a reality and, and you pledge $6,000, you know, I'll, I'll serve you tea in a maid outfit, whatever it takes. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about your experience with Pathfinder. Like you said, you've, you've worked on it. You've had some things that have been mm -hmm. published by them. Uh, you were part of the RPG Superstar competition. I believe you were a finalist. Is that yep. correct? That is cool. Correct. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about you and your background, just so people understand the quality of the product they're getting. Mm -hmm. So um, I started working for Pathfinder. Uh, I actually got my first article just prior to RPG Superstar starting. Um, uh, Paizo developer Adam Daigle gave me an opportunity to create a monster in uh, the Mummy's Mask Adventure Path. Um, the Elder Sphinx, it was this ossified giant sphinx statue that comes to life and kind of eats your mind. It was really a wild idea, and I, I kind of enjoyed running with it. And uh, then RPG Superstar happened, and um, my story for that is is a bit of a long one. I wasn't even really a uh, a contestant at first. I was an alternate. And uh, they had someone who was disqualified, and they brought me in, and I kind of killed it every round. Um, I got into the uh, the finals that year, and uh, I think that was a, a pretty good hit for someone who had really, that was their first foray into professional design. Um, and as soon as RPG Superstar ended, I got a numerous amounts of invitations from other third-party publishers. Um, Raging Swan Press uh, jumped out at me first. They wanted me to work on some of their Village Backdrop products. And I've done... Um, like four or five different books for Raging Swan Press. All of them have gotten five-star reviews from Inzeitgeist, which I think I'm pronouncing correctly. Um, and those have been really highly reviewed. Uh, and then in uh, the fall of last year, um, Paizo reached out to me to work on my largest project with them, which was Occult Adventures. Um, I did a huge number of archetypes and um, the leyline rules for them. Um, there's a, a lot of content inside that book that I kind of had my hands on. It was a big collaborative project um, for about a month prior to working on it. Everyone who wrote Occult Adventures got together on a, um, a uh, site called Basecamp. It's kind of a collaborative uh, design site. Um, and we discussed the project. I worked pretty closely with Brandon Hodge, the um, creative consultant on it. And uh, he and I got to know each other really well. And he was sort of the... Um, early inspirations for the occult aspects of Athera. We, we talked about um, how the occult and science fiction work together. And uh, Occult Adventures was a really strong um, kind of lead for me. From there, I worked on um, Ultimate Intrigue, which hasn't released yet. Um, that's a hardcover book about um, kind of social situations, espionage, spying, and the like in Pathfinder. I worked on Bestiary 5, which I believe is out now, um, maybe just to subscribers. Um, if not, the uh, hardcover should drop this week. Um, I designed several monsters for that. And if, coincidentally, all of those kind of had a little bit of a, a science fiction blend to them. Um, I had to adapt the uh, the gray aliens from like uh, you know, urban mythology um, <laughs> to kind of you know, abduct and probe people into a fantasy setting. And that was... An interesting challenge, um, but I think when you really look at the text, uh, you'll see that it, it, it kind of pulled a, a different spin on them. Um, also, the uh, the Anunnaki, who are a mythological um, kind of uh, inspiration, and they wanted a science fiction spin on that. So I kind of had to delve into stuff like um, the movie Prometheus to really get the idea of these like uh, extraterrestrial engineers that kind of create civilizations and then just leave. Um, Bestiary 5 uh, has some, some, some pretty solid uh, design work by me, and I'm really proud of everything that came out in that. Um, and right now, I just finished a uh, turnover for Horror Adventures, um, Paizo's next big hardcover. I think that comes out next year. Um, and that's all about like uh, running a horror campaign, um, uh, madness, insanities, corruptions, and the like. Um, I designed a large chunk of the corruption subsystems with uh, David Ross, who's working on Athera with me. Um, I guess that kind of is worth mentioning um, about a little more than half of the freelancers who are working on Athera have previously worked on Paizo projects. Um, this is a, a pretty professional team I've got. And nice. Yeah. yeah. Other... Talk to me a little bit about who else is on the team. Mm -hmm. um, so we've got Thurston Hillman. He uh, worked on um, Pathfinder Society scenarios for years before um, starting work um, 
with uh, Paizo's other project lines. Uh, he actually did the first adventure for the upcoming um, Hell's Vengeance Adventure Path. Um, and uh, he worked on Occult Adventures with me. He worked on Ultimate Intrigue. Uh, he and I have, have been kind of partners in crime for a while. Um, we also have Todd Stewart. Um, most people probably know Todd from um, The Great Beyond. It was uh, Paizo's soft cover um, planes book that they put out um, a few years ago now. And uh, that's a, a pretty well-loved book. And Todd's handling our kind of extraplanar excursions with Athera and giving them their own unique and really kind of twisted spin as he's uh, very adept at doing. And uh, Monica Marlowe, who was the uh, RPG Superstar finalist uh, last year, um, is working with us as well. There's a a large number of authors. Um, I would probably um, be remiss to try and name them all. I'd forget some of them, and they they wouldn't be too happy with me. Um, but the other half of the team is they came from a different idea. I wanted to give people an opportunity to join a really large, professionally developed um, RPG product, even though they might not have had the experience necessary to get their foot in the door with um, kind of other publishing companies. I put out an open call on Twitter and Facebook, and I was kind of flooded uh, with responses from people um, who sent me writing samples, resumes. Um, one person sent me a video talking about how much they wanted to work on this project. And I filtered through that and um, picked a really good team out. And most of these people have worked in um, writing science fiction or fantasy, uh, be it fiction or um, journalists. And uh, I gave them an opportunity to really dig into something that they've never had the opportunity to do professionally, but have enjoyed as a hobby. And the results from that have been astounding. Um, one of the um, the new freelancers that I've pulled in, uh, Isabella Lee, has been just a tremendous creative influence. Um, she worked with me on um, kind of establishing the role that uh, monsters called Titans play in the campaign setting. And for those unfamiliar, they are basically the Pathfinder equivalent of the uh, Cenobites from Hellraiser. So taking them out into space and giving them kind of an event horizon, you won't need eyes where you're going vibe, has been really, really excellent. Um, and Isabel's just been a, a constant stream of inspiration and assistance. Um, she actually helped edit, helped edit the uh, preview PDF that we're going to be hopefully getting up on Paizo.com and some other digital distributors um, by the weekend. A lot of the listeners to our podcast are actually D&D players. Mm -hmm. um, and if I'm playing 5th edition D&D, say, uh, mm -hmm. which is what a lot of people are playing these days, uh, will I be able to get any use out of these books? Definitely. Um, even though there's a lot of Pathfinder-specific mechanics in there, more than 200 pages of this book is dedicated to just the setting material, the world, um, the people, the societies. All of that is pretty much system agnostic. Even if you don't use any of the Pathfinder material and don't convert any of it, any of the monsters over, you can use that 200 pages of setting material to run your own 5th edition Athera campaign. And um, I'm pretty sure the space combat rules we're designing will work with 5th edition with very minimal tweaks. Um, it's going to be kind of a framework that you can play inside um, with the entire group of players. And I, I think it'll work pretty well, knowing what I know about 5th edition. Um, I can't 100% promise that, but I think it, it won't take a lot of tweaks. So even if you're not going to be playing Pathfinder, take a look at it and, and look at the setting material, and you'll be able to run your own science fantasy adventures out of that. Converting 3.x stuff to 5th uh, edition is usually very easy, so I bet you would get a lot out of the mechanics as well. You have a great team on this. You are on this. You're giving people opportunities who maybe haven't had a chance to get published before in a crazy, crowded world to also work on it, which is pretty great. Um, and you've got some awesome art of a lion guy with horns wielding a crazy <laughs> blade. <laughs> uh, but in all seriousness, this art is also amazing. You really have some great people who have gone ahead and, and worked on the art for you, like you mentioned as well. Uh, if people want to go ahead and pick this up, what is the best way for them to do so? Obviously, they're going on to Kickstarter. They're checking it out. How much time do they have? When does this end? We've got 12 days left. Um, we're a little more than halfway. Um, 
and uh, the time's pretty much running out to get on board with this and make sure that it funds. Um, so <laughs> get out there, click. <laughs> gotcha. So, and 12 days is going to put people right at the 22nd, right? The Sunday, mm -hmm. the 22nd. So if yep. you're, who knows when people are listening to this, uh, mm -hmm. if it's close to Sunday, the 22nd, you only have a little time left to get in on this at the Kickstarter stage. I've had a, a great time here talking about Athera. Um, I would encourage everyone to take a look at our Facebook page, um, uh, Athera RPG. Uh, we're also on Twitter at, at Athera RPG. We have a lot of content updates there. Um, you can find us by searching the Athera hashtag on Tumblr and Instagram. We try and have pretty regular content updates. Um, also on our blog, AtheraRPG.com. Um, those will probably all be in the, uh, the notes anyway. But go, take a look really dig into it, read. Um, and by the time this comes out, the preview PDF might even be available at paizo.com. Um, you can find that by searching for Athera. Take a look and let us know what you think in the comment sections and in the um, messages on the uh, Kickstarter. If there's any questions you have, don't hesitate to reach out to me. I'm really approachable. And uh, I love talking about this with people. You know, this is a really, really exciting project for you. It's clearly your baby. Uh, I'm very excited for you that this is a thing that's taking off. So uh, everybody should go check this out. It is a project worthy of your time and your look. Where can people find you on the internet if they do want to reach out to you? You can find me on Facebook. Um, I'm commenting all over the uh, Thera Facebook page. Um, I'm on uh, Twitter at, at Sphinxian. Um, and... Uh, you can reach me at robert.brooks at atherarpg.com for all of your questions and cat videos. Everybody go check it out. It is the next big thing in tabletop <laughs> RPGs. Uh, Robert, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I had a great time. Of course. You're welcome back anytime, sir. Andrew Kane, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Cavalier Kane. That's K-A-V-A-L-I-E-R-K-A-N-E. And where can people find you, Alex Basso? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at yo underscore Alex Basso. That's B-A-S-S-O. Excellent. And he is also on this very podcast network. Oh, yeah. You're right. Uh, D&D VNG. I don't know when this is coming out, but hopefully we should have a Sword Coast Legends episode coming out for the full game coming out soon. Excellent, excellent. And you can listen to the mini cast that's already out and I will link Yeah, it. the head start. Yeah, I'll link it in the show notes for this episode. And also check out Alex's YouTube channel, Game O'Clock, where he reviews yeah. and plays video games. James, you're better at promoting me than myself. Thank you. <laughs> uh, and of course, Craig, where can people find you? Well, you can find me on the internets at uh, Facebook, Google+, Twitter, wherever. It's all the same. It's Craig Hasis, all one word, C-R-A-I-G. H-A-A-S-I-S. And uh, James, where can people find you? You can find me uh, both on Twitter and Tumblr. That's where I keep my blog. At James J. Hake. Hake is H-A-E-C-K. That's my handle for both of them. And you'll also find me on the EN World forums doing my own thing and also doing work for their fifth edition magazine, Insider. Yes which is excellent, and everybody should go check it out, and not just because I had an article published in it this week. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, everybody, thanks for listening. You can find me on Twitter at James Intricasso. That's at J-A-M-E-S-I-N-T-R-O-C-A-S-O. You can check out my blog, which is all about Exploration Age, the fifth edition world I'm building over at worldbuilderblog.me. Okay, everybody, thanks for listening, and thanks to Alex, Andrew, Craig, and and James. Special thanks to Jeff Reiner for letting us join the Tome Show lineup and to Sam Dillon for getting this podcast out there on the airwaves. Our theme music, which you're listening to right now, was composed by Eric Michaels. Don't forget to go to thetomeshow.com and use the affiliate links whenever you shop on Amazon or D&D Classics to help support this show. And hey, if you like the show, please rate the Tome Show on iTunes and like us on Facebook. Keep on rolling and keep on listening to the Roundtable.